You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me for Writers Off The Page, where I sit down with authors, illustrators, and creative minds to find out the ins and outs of writing and publishing. Roz Thomas is a Perth-based author and journalist of 25 years. Over here in WA, she's most well-known for her long-running weekly column in the West Australian newspaper, and now her debut novella, How To Shame The Devil. Roz Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Sinead. How are you? I'm good. Now tell me, so you were a journalist by trade, so has creative writing always been on the agenda for you on the side or is this a relatively new pursuit? No, I think um, I think it's been a natural progression. It's I have always written, but I've never cons- I never considered actually becoming a writer because I was always a journalist and that's what I did for a living, so I was already writing. But um I started in radio um, straight out of university, well, actually even while I was at university, and um, got a real taste for, you know, deadlines and alley bulletins and being out on the road um, with, you know, all the all the crews. And then uh, so I had a couple of years in radio in radio newsrooms and then I made the switch to television and discovered that I really loved writing for pictures and the reason I loved writing for pictures is because what I wrote was then voiced and I was really taken with the spoken word and I thought that it was a it was a a really atmospheric medium to to be narrating a story that is attached to pictures so it's kind of a um you know you get all your senses satisfied by watching and listening um, and so I sort of naturally um, veered into um, national current affairs for that reason. I wanted more time to tell stories and I wanted to be out shooting a lot of stories. And so I ended up um, having 25 years in television and working as an overseas correspondent. I moved to Sydney. Um, I worked in national current affairs. I worked as a bureau chief where I was the only reporter in a bureau responsible to the national program, um, you know, like 7.30 report. And um, and then I would would get sent overseas, and uh, you know I covered a whole raft of you know big international stories. So um, I thought I had the you know the very best of jobs until I had um, my second child, and realised that travelling at the drop of a hat when you know something huge happens um, is not conducive with toddlers and babies, and decided that I needed a change of pace. <clears throat> And it was about that point that the West Australian newspaper rang and said, would I consider writing a weekly column for the magazine on Saturday um, about what it, actually the brief they gave me was, um, could you write a column about what it's like to give up your career for motherhood, which <laughs> sounded like a complete backhander, but that's pretty much exactly what Would you like to was. write about the death sentence of yeah. motherhood? <laughs> And so um, what they wanted me to write about was to, you know, take my sort of forensic, um, you know, knowledge of character and, you know, you know, really what the common touch is is what a lot of journalists have and apply that rather to big, you know, international breaking stories and national breaking stories, apply that in sort of a microscopic way to the suburbs and the surroundings and, um, shopping centres and, you know, day-to-day life. So I ended up writing 
uh, a weekly column for five, or almost five years, I think, four maybe, five. And uh, for some reason it just really got a hold and um, I told the editor of the West Australian that if, you, if I was going to do this then I would write a column that a man would want to read and he said, well, that's not going to happen but, you know, you can give it a crack. Mm-hmm. And by the time I finished the column I had a 50-50 male-female readership so I'm very... Oh. I'm very proud of the fact that I managed to get men to read a woman's column Um, and I think the only formula for that was um, I was very careful about what I wrote about each week. I had some real rules that I stuck to as to what I would choose to write about and I would uh, only write about things that could be universally experienced. So that meant that everything I wrote about could have been experienced by a man. That was um, pivotal and I, you know, I wanted to write humour. A lot of it was humour. I mean, some of it was not. Some of it was, you know, uh, really serious, but a lot of it um, was human. So by the time I finished the column, um, you know, I had a really um, big following. I had sort of 320,000 readers each week and they would write to me in droves. Um, So I'd get dozens and dozens of emails each week and I would, I made a rule for myself that I would, um, if someone could be bothered writing to me, then I would take the time to write back. And so what that did was create this really vibrant relationship between a writer and a reader. And we would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, some of them still email me to this day. Oh, this is what's happened. And this is, and it was a really, um, it was a really important lesson to me, which you don't get in television, of course, because you don't know who's watching, but it was a really important lesson to me. Now with social media, the feedback is quite quite vocal. (laughs) That's true. But but when I, yeah, I was sort of definitely pre-Facebook when I was working in national uh, current affairs. So, yeah, it was a re- it's a re- it was a really interesting lesson in what how uh, precious the connection is between a writer and a reader, and I think that is what um, got me the idea of right. Well, actually, now what I want to do is write a novel, and I'd already published. Um, I'd already had a book of columns published by um, University Press that had done very well and had been the bestseller for its year for UWA Press. And so I knew that readership was sort of there and I thought, well, if I can write my first fiction, then those hopefully that audience will still be there and will still enjoy reading the way I write. Unfortunately, I didn't think it was going to take me three years to do it. Um, (laughs) I'm going to stop you for a sec before you keep going, just to go back, because I think it's very relevant, particularly people will realise why when we start talking about how to shame the devil, you said about the importance for you of you wanted both men and women to read your column, not just to be a column for females. Why was there that importance for you? What was the drive? Um, that's a really good question. Um, well, I really like men and I don't think men read enough uh well fiction for starters but I I don't like the way they really only read um you know the sport and the finance pages and you know they would turn away from a so-called female column I just wanted to engage them and I you know I really I really I just I've got a real um a real burning sort of desire to write for the universal and I don't really consider that men and women you know are really that different when it comes to our interiors I mean we all feel the same we all think this you know we all in in you know myriad ways we still have all the same feelings so I sort of treat my readers as though they're sexless in a way 
Um, but I, I just really didn't want to write something that wasn't a, a universal experience or a universal entertainment or a universal pleasure. And um, I really like men and I really particularly like older men. Um, and I think it, I just wanted to write the types of subjects that they would enjoy. And it was so lovely, you know, when husbands and wives would um, email me every Saturday and say, we've just fought over the newspaper, we fight over the newspaper to see who gets to read you first because obviously you get the upper hand if you've read me first. So <laughs> um, it was lovely. And I just felt like I'd created sort of a little bond between husbands and wives as well, that they would have a laugh about the column and say, oh, that happens in our house and, you know, just give them a different viewpoint on how women think in marriage and how men think in marriage and, you know, I, I just really like the idea of not excluding anyone. Mm. So how did the novella come to be? Where did that fit into everything? Uh, so um, after I've been writing the column uh, for that time, uh, after about four years, my mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and um, because I'm an only child, it fell to me, of course, to look after her and the longer we went through that first year, the more time it was taking up. And I realised that I was going to really, really struggle um, to write the column and look after her because she was getting quite labour intensive and emotionally intensive. And because I was writing sort of about what happened to me each week, I also was worried that, um, you know, that column would start to get a little bit on the, you know, serious and depressing side because, virtually everything I was doing was connected to looking after her which is great you know every now and again but you know I wasn't pushing out and experiencing other things like I usually did getting on trains and going to seminars and driving to the country and talking to people because I was responsible for her so I decided to um, that I better quit while I was ahead and I quit the column um, at its peak uh, which was, I think, in hindsight, a good move. Um, you never want to fall out of favour with your readers, um, you know, or they get tired of you. So I definitely went out on at my peak readership. And then I found myself sitting in a nursing home um, day in, day out, uh, you know, trying to um, settle my mum. And, you know, until you've been in a nursing home, you really have only a bunch of cliches to show for what you think think you know about aged care and what you think you know about the people that live in aged care and I was um the same I mean I had had a grandmother in aged care but you know I I was so fascinated by the theatre of institutionalised life I was fascinated by the elderly residents I was um really quite mesmerised by um their absolute um you know desire to keep moving the trajectory of their lives forward. They had not moved into a nursing home as their final address to, you know, let it all go and die. They were, you know, they still had hopes and wishes and regrets and things they wanted to make amends for. Um, they had, they wanted to make future plans. They were seeking relationships. They were cultivating, um, you know, really strong friendships. And it was, um, it was, it was actually, it became sort of a, a lovely place to be this, and the relationships between the staff and the residents in particular really impressed me. 
Um, and I saw how the staff um, were absolutely instrumental in keeping um, residents buoyed if they were, you know, becoming sick or ill. And, you know, plenty of the residents in the nursing home where my mum was um, still had their cars and they basically used the nursing home like a hotel. Oh, wow, I didn't actually know that was a possibility. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they were, you know, basically used as a hotel. You know, everything's done and you got all your meals prepared and, um, you know, your washing's done and it's lovely and you don't have to clean. Um, and so I started um, taking notes and thinking, you know, these characters are, and the characters in there are so vibrant because not only um, are they physically really interesting to describe but um you know that that there's everything there's every kind of personality in there huge ones bad ones naughty ones grumpy ones um you know it's like it's like being in um in a you know in a childcare center and it's just a riot of you know different personalities and so I very quickly worked out um that I had some seriously good characters um to to you know to bounce off and so um that became the start of How to Shame the Devil. Now, I'll get you first to tell people a little bit about it. I've had the, the pleasure of reading it. It's an incredibly powerful piece of writing. Um, I'll get you first to put into words so people understand what we're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really hard book to describe. Your publishers always say to you, right, you've got to have your elevator pitch ready. You need to be able to tell people in you know under 30 seconds what this book's about. Um, and I, I still, even now, like, you know, what is it, 24 weeks after it's been published, I'm still struggling to actually say exactly what it's about But um, because there's so many different threads to the story. But what it is about is that it is about an elderly gentleman who finds himself in a nursing home and is adjusting to life in the nursing home and falls um, quite madly in love with another resident. And while he's trying to engineer his um, last and greatest love affair, um, a woman from his long ago past accuses him of being the office sex predator from the 1980s when they worked together and his life detonates. Um, that is the basic gist of the novel, if I can give it to you in as, in as succinct a uh, way as possible. It was a very succinct elevator pitch. It was good, wasn't it? It was very good. Now, tell me, opening up the conversation of consent, particularly at the moment while the Me Too movement is still so prominent, pretty brave thing to do on your part. Were there any hesitations? Well, the fascinating thing about that is that when I started writing the novel, Me Too didn't exist. Uh -huh. So I started writing the novel in 20, I started taking notes in 2016 and I knew based on my time in radio that I could write very um, accurately the things that happened to me when I was 21 in my first jobs in media in a very male-dominated field at a time when there was no such thing as sex or sexual harassment law at a time when men ruled the office and most of the men in media were senior and very charismatic but very powerful men and there were hardly any women and just the first young ones were coming through and, um, you know, there was a real power imbalance in the dynamic in the, in, in the office. So I knew that I wanted to write something about that dynamic between men and women um, and I wanted to touch on what happens if a woman doesn't verbalise her no um, 
But at that stage, uh, Me Too was not a thing. There was no Harvey Weinstein. There was no Jeffrey Rush. There was nothing. And about a year after I was writing the draft, Harvey Weinstein happened and it just imploded. As you know, it was an absolute ball of fire that went around the world. And so the faster I was writing, the more I was aware, oh, my God, this thing is. And, you know, the following year there was Jeffrey Rush. The following year there was Christian Porter. And the following year there was, you know, another Hollywood celebrity. And the whole time I was writing the draft, which I'm very slow at, um, I was thinking I've got to get ahead of this because I don't want this bubble to burst before I publish. Um, And so um, I feel that it was um, sort of a very serendipitous accident that I chose a topic that then became a political movement. Um, which is a hard thing to do when you know it's going to take a couple of years to write a novel is to actually uh, have it, you know, stay ahead of what mm. the current political, you know, status is on the, on you know, the rights of women, for example. So we've heard with the Me Too movement now, we often hear the perspective of females in, within the Me Too movement. This is the voice of a male in amongst it. What made you decide to be the voice of a male? A really silly one, I think, because I think it was a very dangerous thing to do. Um, I don't, I knew I didn't want to write the victim's story. I wanted to write the alleged perpetrator's story because I I knew that for every, you know, awful, you know, sex pest or sex predator that was being outed in the Me Too movement, there was going to be a f- quite a few men who would be caught up in it but possibly weren't, um, possibly weren't, you know, malevolently uh, motivated, that they'd got themselves caught up in a situation where they had made errors of judgment and, you know, they were now being accused of being something that they didn't think they were. And I, and I, I wondered what would happen if someone, you know, from your long ago past, and I mean 30 years ago, decided in the wake of the current political movement, what if they decided to throw a grenade into your present and see, you know, and and accuse you of of a, you know, historical crime? You know, can we judge today's, you know, can we judge the behaviours of, you know, 30 years ago by the social mores or social mores of today? And I thought that would be a really interesting premise um, to argue and I knew it would be very difficult but I wanted to argue that premise on behalf of those men that might be the accidental predator if there is such a thing I should say an accidental you know accidentally accused or you know unfortunately accused and I wanted also to leave a lot of room for readers to decide whether he is a predator or not and that was my chief aim in writing the book is for the reader at the end of the book to go well, he got what he deserved. He didn't get what he deserved. Um, he was a predator. He wasn't a predator. And it's been very interesting since the book's been out um, to talk to readers about how they viewed him. So that's been really fascinating, especially at book clubs. I go to a lot of book clubs, almost one or two a week, and that's been the huge topic of conversation is, you know, which readers thought he was a predator and which ones went, oh, he's just an idiot and he just got caught up, made the wrong decision at the wrong time. And so it's been really interesting. Well, it is such an interesting conversation starter almost. When I finished, I I was having a really good chat to my husband about it actually. And 
I was saying exactly that, exactly what you were saying, that I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this guy. I don't, so, there's a weird part of me that feels sympathetic towards him, which you don't expect to feel when someone's been accused of an act like that. But it just opened up that conversation with my husband and I were saying, God, it is really scary now where you don't really know how to act in the office anymore, where what's appropriate, what was once you would hug a colleague without thinking or kiss a male colleague on the cheek or vice versa, whatever, out of congratulations. Now nobody really knows how they can act because we've almost gone to this opposite extreme with the Me Too movement where we all tread so carefully just in case it comes back to bite us. And like you were saying, when you're talking about the past where none of this had really happened and, yes, very, very inappropriate things did happen at times and there are those lines that are quite clear, that they were crossed, that there's no question about it, but there are perhaps those innocent moments that perhaps are viewed a little differently now than they once were. You're absolutely right, Sinead, because... um you know, what was, what's acceptable now in the office situation is, does not resemble anything that was, you know, if not accepted, at least tolerated in the 1980s. And I think that's the key point is, you know, certain behaviours by men were tolerated at a time when women were not 50-50 in the office and they weren't um, they weren't in positions of power and they weren't getting equal pay. And that's the way it had been for quite a long time. Um, you know, now that's unacceptable. Um, but when you try to, you know, throw an allegation of criminal intent, you know, and make it stick 30 years later, I do think you need to examine how society and how, you know, people behaved at a certain time and say, well, they were a product of their time. Can we then, you know, convict them of a crime based on, you know, you know, an idea of how women and men should behave in a particular setting? And the other, the other reason I wanted to write the novel was because I think men and women are constantly misunderstanding each other. And I don't think that's changed now, I mean, I can say I misunderstand and my husband misunderstands me constantly. You know, we still don't get each other. We are still so far, men and women are still so far apart. What's not to say that some of these, you know, alleged, you know, sexual encounters take place in this grey zone of miscommunication? They're not intended to be predatory. There's a whole bunch of, you know, missed signals or missed gestures or missed, you know, missed intentions that then lead to an uncomfortable situation. And we've we've all had uncomfortable sex and we've all, you know, been with people that's not working and, and you just want to escape. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the man has been a predator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I also think... Um, you know, in in this particular day and age, I think the pendulum has swung almost too far to towards you know believing every woman who makes any allegation. So you know, I also wanted the burden of proof put back into the equation, and you know, to write a book that said, "Can we please examine the evidence on a case by case basis rather than assume that every man is a predator?" Mm. Because is not a predator which is a scary thing because how do you prove something like that unless you're going to audio record every encounter and get 
a a consent on camera or on an audio recording on whatever. How do you prove something like that? And if that allegation is made, particularly down the track or at any stage, that ruins, that can completely destroy somebody's life without there being any concrete evidence. It's it's one person's word against another. That's right. And I think that, I mean, ask Brittany Higgins, I mean, that's exactly what she's going to have to prove with no evidence. And, you know, that's why for me memory is such an important theme in the book because memory, and I did a lot of research on memory and I spent a lot of time with a neuropsychiatrist who'd offered to consult on the book. Um, and, you know, I, I studied how memories are laid and why some are forgotten and why some aren't um, and how we remember and how, you know, internally every single person tries to recast themselves as, as the hero of any memory. So Art, for example, wants to cast himself as the innocent in his situation and Mathilde wants to cast herself as the innocent and somewhere in between is the truth. But memory over 30 years is very unreliable and very duplicitous. So there is no way that Mathilde can remember accurately what happened that night because they were not only is it 30 years ago, but they were both drunk and Art can't remember it either. So part of the, you know, part of the conflict of the novel is that both those characters, and you don't hear from Mathilde because I did that deliberately, it was going to get too complicated, but what you hear is Art's absolute, uh, you know, he's completely in crisis because he has to relive a memory he can only slightly remember and try and work out whether he is in fact the the villain that she says he is and so he he you know there is a lot of time spent on how he tries to pull up this deep memory from a long time ago and work out what exactly happened what did he miss what did he what does he remember of how she was behaving can he remember certain gestures and what did they then mean um you know, especially if there's no talking between a couple in a, you know, in a lustful situation, you're really, and it's dark and you're drunk, you don't have a lot to go on if, you know, you're trying to work out if, you know, the intention is still good to continue with the encounter. So, you know, I found that really, that was, you know, I found that really fascinating to write. And um, a lot of people have said that it really made them think about um, how memory can, completely um, reconstruct an encounter and how difficult it must be for the courts to kind of work out who's telling the truth because everyone thinks they're telling the truth. What's the response been like since the novellas come out? It's been amazing. It, it really has taken me by surprise. Um, the first edition sold out in 18 weeks. Wow. Which, Congratulations. Um, thank you, um, which was like, really mind-blowing so we're in the second edition after only 18 weeks which I, I mean that's the dream isn't it for a writer um the response was immediate um it got a lot of coverage because of uh the contentious nature of the plot um no one has questioned uh my decision well people have questioned my decision to write from the point of view of uh, a male but no one said I did a bad job of it so that's kind of good <laughs> Not at least to me and not at least publicly. I'm sure there are plenty of readers who think that, you know, 
maybe that wasn't the right choice, but um, the, you know, a lot of the debate has been around consent about how does a woman uh, verbalise her no and what happens if she doesn't? You know, if she doesn't say no, is it then consensual? And um, so there's been a lot of talk about that and there's also been a lot of talk about the scenes in the nursing home and about dignity and ageing and about giving dignity and giving life and character back to the elderly. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about the letters. I think the letters probably, the letters that start each chapter, um, uh, which was a, a literary device that just came to me in a blinding flash of uh, inspiration, um, the letters I think have made the book a word of mouth seller and because and by these for people who haven't read the book Roz is referring to, there are letters to the editor that start, that open up most of the chapters and they are very witty and very clever. And am I right that they were sparked by a real life tale? Yes. So, um, so when I used to write to my correspondents, I sort of gathered a bunch of um, older uh, elderly men in their 70s, most of them in their 80s actually, who, um, you know, for want of something to do, um, we'd sort of have sport, you know, each Saturday we'd go backwards and forwards giving each other a hard time and, to, you know, talking through, you know, bits and bobs. And so some of my regular correspondents, um, I discovered that they were also um, uh, rabid letters to the editor's writers and, uh you know, were desperate to get themselves published in the newspaper each day and would compete with each other. And so I started writing uh, letters to the editor as well, competing with them. But was this while you still had the column or after that you started? Well, some of them were published while I had the column. So, of course, I had to write under pseudonyms. And so <laughs> I that I would write under the rudest pseudonyms I could get away with. So I started, um, the first one I wrote under was a bloke called Lou Bracant, who was obviously <laughs> Lou Bricant. Nobody cottoned onto it, so I couldn't believe it. And I'd got uh, letters published, you know, at least a couple a week. Um, and so my um, elderly correspondents were all going into battle with Lou Bracant, um, which was just hysterical because they were sending me, you know, photos of his letters and I knew that I was the writer. And so I started expanding the stable and I started writing under another bloke called Don Keebles, who's actually Donkey Balls. And then I had another one called Don Kedich, who, if you re-pronounce, if you re-pronounce that, is Donkey Dick. So I had Donkey Dick and Donkey Balls and Lubricant. Then I started on the women. I was writing under Wilma Handu <laughs> as a Dutch woman. <laughs> it just got published. Everything I wrote under, if the letters were witty and funny enough, they got published that there's Wilma Handu. In, you know, on the pages of the, of the West Australian, um, I had um, I had Jenny Talia. I had... Uh, Surely that, someone was reading these in, in the newsroom, <laughs> having a bit of a chuckle but going, oh, on the page they're actually legit-looking names so we'll just let it slide. Well, the letters were legit. So the letters were, you know, legitimate, you know, political mm. outrage or arguing with another correspondent. But I now know that no one picked it. Like no one picked it. I thought they were having sport with me and that they were because they knew that it was entertaining. But nobody in the letters department picked it. Um, and so we we got really out of it. By the time the novel was coming out, the um, the boys and I, we, we were actually getting quite out of hand. Like we were 
replying to our own pseudonyms. So Donkey Dick would write a letter and then the reply would be published by Donkey Balls and then the reply would be, you know, I had Claire Taurus there for a while. That was just insane. So we were all in hysterics every morning and then we'd ring each other or text each other or email each other. Oh, my God, can you believe, you know, Claire Taurus and Lubricant got in. And so, you know, we were having, you know, the time of our lives and then just as the uh, novel came out and the first people started reading it, um, somebody, you know, plenty of people cottoned on to it, but because I'd used a number of the similar names and the letters were starting to read very much like me, uh, somebody tipped off um, the local radio, st- uh, 6PR radio station, who then went looking for the owner of the pseudonyms in the West Australian and finally somebody squealed and it got to me. So it, it was actually the most perfect publicity launch for a book because not only well was played. It- it was art imitating <laughs> art, with no no pun intended on art, um, <laughs> characters novels. So I had sort of, I had this sort of, um, yeah, it, it was like all roads converged at, you know, an, an exact date when the book was launched. So that it, it did get a real, um, it did get a real kick along from the letters. And the letters are, I mean, they are really, they are really funny and um, I think they really drew in the male readers because they're always a bit naughty and silly and, and I think the blokes um, really cottoned on to the novel after that because they knew it was going to be just as much for them and their sense of humour as it was for their wives or their, you know, for their daughters. Or So that was, that was uh, yeah, that was just lucky. But, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of things about writing novels is really lucky, you know, lucky lucky accidents and things that work that, you you know, things fall into place. So I do feel like there's a bit of luck involved that I just decided that I'd start most of the chapters with a letter because I was going to make the character a vehement letters to the editor writer. And that was great. it was a great device to have him try to remain relevant from the nursing home. He really desperately wanted to still be relevant and his way of remaining relevant in life was to be seen on the pages of the West Australian each morning. That gave him a real kick. Let's talk about the path to publication. Traditional publishing in itself is tough enough. When you bring in the fact that this is a novella, which what, what's the word count for a novella maximum? Is it four? It's 30 to 50. 30 to 50. Yeah. Not an easy thing to get across the line with publishers. So how did you go about it? Well, I didn't consider it was a novella. So um, I just considered that it was a succinct story because I'm a journalist and I, you know, don't really write, you know, with any flab or fat. I had just edited and whittled it down until there was not a word spare. Um, So I think probably too because I'm used to writing short form. The shorter novel just sat, you know, more... um, comfortably with me so I at no point before publication had I ever considered that it was a novella I just said it was a novel but then I realized that Fremantle Press in particular wouldn't look at any manuscripts under 50,000 words and here I was with a manuscript of 42,000 words so I went looking for other books that were 42,000 words just to see if I'd you know if I needed to write another 9,000 words which I desperately didn't want to do because I thought it was you know, pretty tight. And I realised that there's a whole swathe of what we call novels that are technically novellas. The, the Great Gatsby um, is is exactly the same length as my book of Mice and Men, The Old Man and the Sea. Um, there are so uh, a lot of Julian Barnes's work, a lot of, so many um, really famous novels are now considered technically novellas. Um, 
And so when Night Parrot Press um, deci- decided they were very interested in publishing um, the book, um, they said they wanted to market it as a novella, um, as a key difference, um, because they think that people, um, they thought that people would really enjoy a short read. It was non-threatening. Um, men would be attracted to a shorter book, um, you know, if they were nervous about whether they were going to, you know, read a female writer and a debut, you know, fiction writer. Um, and so that became the marketing uh, marketing ploy for, you know, publishing a novel that is just that little bit shorter but is um, something that you can pick up and read in one hit, uh, which a lot of people have done, which I never thought they would do. I had a lot of um, letters <laughs> from um, <laughs> from people saying I hate you I started reading your novel at nine at nine o'clock at night and I'm still awake at 2 p.m and I finished it and uh, I had a ball and I couldn't go to sleep so that I mean that is <laughs> fantastic that not only was it a page turner but also they couldn't stop um so that was you know that's just music it was music to my ears um but also that you know it you know you will read it in two weeks you know, if you're like me and you read five pages and fall asleep, you'll still read it in two weeks. And I think a lot of people look at those really big, thick doorstops and go, yeah, am I going to invest two months of my life reading this giant book? And, you know, often you do and sometimes you don't. So I just wanted to not turn away any reader because they were, you know, threatened by, you know, the length. But it wasn't a conscious decision to write a novella at all. It, the, story, the story finished naturally at 42,000 words. I like what you said and I completely understand it. Having been a journo, that feeling of not wanting to flesh something out just for the sake of it, like you've told the story, you've done it really succinctly, you've covered every angle of it, why add the fat in there just for the sake of it? And it's it would be nice. I mean, I had Night Parrot Press on the podcast not too long ago actually and they were talking yeah. about publishing outside of the mainstream challenging what the norm is in publishing and what the norm is of an adult novel and what goes out and it's nice that there is this publisher that's open to to shaking things up a little bit and publishing the words that are there and knowing that they're enough and I don't I don't really even think the novella is very controversial I mean in history it is it is sometimes you know plenty of times it's been the norm so um I don't know where we got this desire to you know, classify books in terms of their wordage. I mean, a great story and a really well-written book is, it doesn't matter to me what the length is. Um, I don't remember hearing somewhere that a publisher saying that people wanted to get value for money. So more words meant that more bang for your buck. But I'm like, oh, that really depends on the quality of the words though, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Yeah, I haven't heard that. I mean, I would, you know, I absolutely adored uh, Douglas Stewart, Shuggy Bain, and that was a good, oh, that was at least five or 600 pages and I had no trouble with that. But I know lots of people who said I got 100 words in and I just couldn't keep going or I got halfway through and I was like, no, I just can't, I can't devote any more time to this. So, yeah, but, I mean, the trick to writing any, obviously the trick to writing any novel is to, you know, to make your reader want to, you know, race through it. I mean, that's, to me, that's, the ultimate compliment because it means that not only was the plot fascinating enough for you to stay and keep reading but also that the prose was constructed cleverly enough was in that you never had to stop you didn't have to go back and read you didn't have to overread a sentence you didn't stumble it just flew by 
And that's, to me, that's the sign of perfect prose, you know, really, you know, really beautiful prose is when it just, there's no interruption to the reader. And it, reading is a really visceral, you know, experience. It's, it's about holding the book. It's about turning the page. It's about how the words are formatted. It's about the font. It's about the space on the page. I mean, it's a real, you know, it, part of what I wanted to do was give the pleasure of the experience of reading. And I think, um, you know, even, even having the pages set out in a nice open way is um, instrumental to your reading pleasure. And we've all picked up a book printed in, you know, 1920s with a tiny type and just gone, oh, I can't. It's just, you know, it's exhausting to read and all the, all the sentences scrunched up together. So, um, you know, I think, I, think, um, I think reading should be a really pleasurable experience. I'm going to turn that around. I won't keep you much longer because I know you're feeling a little bit sniffly. So the goal <laughs> is <COVID>. obviously, <laughs> not COVID, the goal obviously is to keep readers turning the page without being interrupted. If you had to give one tip for aspiring writers to achieve that, what would you say for them looking at their own work and being critical of it? Uh, If I had to give a tip to young writers or aspiring writers or old writers who've decided (laughs) they've got right, which is basically what I did, um, I would turn every single sentence over and over and over until it catches the light and you'll know when that is. But don't ever let a sentence just be bland. Every single sentence has to sort of dance on the page. And I think when you when you start doing that, you realise how many ways there are to write a sentence, but there'll only be one perfect way for that sentence to live in your novel and unfortunately that is a little bit of painstaking way to write a novel (laughs) uh, which is the way I've always written I you know perfect you know turn the sentence until it catches the light and then move to the next one but I think um, when you write stream of consciousness um, it's great for getting ideas out and great for you know seeing where your you know creative you know, imagination will go, but when you come back to, and I don't do that, but I know a lot of writers who do just get the whole lot down. I think when you go back, you have to be really strict with yourself about trying to work out whether that sentence really sings. And a lot of that is going to be dependent on not just the words and in what arrangement you've put them, but the rhythm of that sentence and the cadence of that sentence. And you know, where the full stop lies in terms of the syllable of the preceding word. And there is a real music to language. And I think possibly because I wrote for the spoken word in television for so long, I'm very aware of the musicality of the spoken word. And so I think somehow that's translated into musicality on the page. And there's, um, I will always remove a word if, if it's got an, uh, if it's got a hanging syllable if if the syllable ruins the music of the sentence if it's like an after step I'll change the word just to get the to get the rhythm or the cadence right and I think that's why it reads uh effortlessly but it's not been an effortless process um, <laughs> yeah um but you know what's happening is the invisible mechanics are working very very hard underneath and so that creates this sort of flow and hopefully if I've done that that's um that's great I've just got to keep learning how to do it over and over again with different stories and I I don't find it easy but I find it very satisfying when it does 
when I finally get the right form to a sentence. So what's your sign then that a manuscript is done? Is it just that when you're reading it, hearing that rhythm in your head and going, yep, yep, that's the flow, or is there something else you're looking for? Well, there's that. In other words, no stumbles, um, no interruptions, no um, no awkwardness in particular. Um, but the other the other way I know it's, you know, a chapter's ready is if, and I do draft after draft after draft, uh, I mean dozens of drafts, um, I print I print out the, the draft I think of a, of a chapter, say a draft I think um, that is ready, I'll print it out and then read it out loud and see if there's, any extra awkwardness or stumbles that come out when I read it aloud. Um, and the other way I check whether something's as perfect as I can make it is if I read it through and there just isn't anything I want to change or if there just there just seems no point changing anything, it, 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 is, it is as good as I can make it, that's the only time I know that it's ready and then I can move on to the next chapter or the next line and I do the same with short story and I do the same with flash fiction so it's very much um it's very much got to be a completely effortless read and then I know that all the mechanics are working so what's next for you will there be another novella in your future another novel oh I think this time I'm going to have to write a novel because I I think you know I don't want to cut myself off from you know publishers who only want to publish works over 50,000 so yes there's another novel in train it started um it started very fast and went very well for about three weeks and then it hit a giant brick wall and has stayed there um I've just taken the chief character and spent eight weeks writing a short story with that particular character from the novel and uh I'm hoping that will get me over the hump um but I think I'm just terrified to start again um (laughs) I'm very desperate to get the first draft out um, in under three years. I just can't conceive of uh, another three years of writing a first draft. So I'm sort of trying to force myself to get it out quickly. It's not coming quickly, but I think it'll be the same process. It'll be two steps forward, one step back. And I think sometimes I just have to have lived experience to actually write the novel. It's just got to incubate for at least a year or two to come out the way it should. It's a bit like having a baby. It's just got to gestate. Now <laughs> early or it'll be it won't be right it won't be right so but hopefully I, once it's out there's a bit more sleep on the other side yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well that yeah then that's the burnout I think that's for a writer the post publication well the post manuscript post final manuscript is total burnout so yes I think so but yes hopefully <laughs> hopefully in three years time there'll be uh, another novel a bit longer uh hopefully uh hopefully better Well, stay tuned. Meanwhile, if anyone hasn't read, it's How to Shame the Devil. Have a read. Roz Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Shemay. I really love talking to you. And thank you for listening to the Writers Off the Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue. And while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or review. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye.